Take your Bible and turn to Proverbs. Uh, A little bit of a story here. We are headed to Exodus, but uh, we've been in Proverbs on Sunday evenings. But Tom had a great idea of, uh, while I'm in between series, to kind of inject some of these Proverbs for those that haven't been in Sunday evenings, to hear some uh, from the book of Proverbs on a Sunday morning, Um, particularly as we kind of look at a a culture that uh, I think it's safe to say has collectively lost its mind. Uh, Hearing a book of wisdom today is really a good thing. So Proverbs chapter 15, going to read the whole chapter. Uh, and we're going to actually deal with, I think, all but three verses uh, throughout this, which is a bit of an ambitious task, but why not? <laughs> a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. And the eyes of the Lord are in every place. <laughs> Keeping watch on the evil and on the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Lips of the wise spread knowledge. Not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be proved, sorry, reproved. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, 
and a word in season, how good it is. The path of life leads upward for the prudent that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. The Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. But gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would bless the reading and the upcoming preaching of your word. You have told us in your scriptures that if we lack wisdom, we should ask and you give generously. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say that almost everyone in our current country lacks wisdom. We look around in the craziness that takes place. We ask that you would now speak to us and that we might understand and be transformed. Uh, Lord, give wisdom. We need it. Please give generously. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with a serious topic. Sports curses. That's not a serious topic at all. You know what a sports curse is? Obviously, it's not a real thing. It's superstitious. But a sports curse is when a sporting team makes a poor decision and then proceeds to reap what seems to be disproportionate bad luck for a series of years that follow. And I love looking at sports curses, not because of the team that's failing. I love looking at what it does to the fan base. I love looking at the just quirky, like the, the just weird neurosis that develops in the fans. How every time they see anything that remotely resembles that original bad decision, they get like twitchy. I, I just love watching it. I loved watching Cubs fans for my entire childhood, sorry, Marie. Um, I loved watching Boston Red Sox fans for, I mean, as long as I've been alive until the last handful of years. But this week, for those of you, I am going to the World Cup, you know what's happening. We watched one of the great ones actually broken this week. Nate knows because his family's from this country, but England has been the victim of a sports curse for years. You know, England invented soccer. It's home is in England, and they are perennially one of the great nations. Yet they have this spectacular ability to lose terribly on penalty kicks. 
And if you watch the World Cup this week, England played, and they're playing kind of far on into the uh, actual competition. They were seemingly to have a chance to win it all, probably the side that's playing the best. And they get into their game, and at the end of regulation, it's tied, and then they go into extra time, and at the end of extra time, it's tied, and they go to penalty kicks. Which, of course, I go to social media to watch all of the people that I follow in social media display all of the nervous ticks that are going to come out. You know, the, the, the soccer is out to get us, which is hilarious. Just score a goal, you would have been fine. I mean, I guess it does sting a little bit when you lost on penalty kicks in 1990 in the World Cup, in 94 in the World Cup, and 98 in the World Cup, and 2004 in the World Cup and 2006 in the European Championship, and 2012 in the World... You realize every World Cup since 1990, except for, I think, two England's lost on penalty kicks. And so they go into penalty kicks this week, and you get to watch a nation collectively freak out, thinking something is out to get them. I love it. I love it. It's just it's so fun to watch. And, of course, England wins, and the nation's like, ah! And of course, obviously, obviously nothing's out to get us. It was just bad luck those other times. We can score goals when we need to. Obviously, there's nothing out to get us, obviously. And it's interesting. I, I, I do enjoy it from the sporting perspective, but then also from just the larger spiritual perspective, how people consider whether or not the world is actually out to get them. Because when you're winning, you never think that way because you're out to get it. But when you're losing, someone's always out to get you. And I think part of that is it really stems down to most people, I think, uh, wrongly so, view the world with dualism. That Eastern yin and yang idea that good and evil are equally balanced and therefore the world is fairly equally balanced and if I make good decisions, I'll do fine and if I sell Babe Ruth, I'll lose for the next hundred years. (laughs) We kind of oftentimes assume that everything's kind of on this neutral level and my decisions make a huge impact in whether things are out to get me. The problem is, is that's not actually remotely accurate. Dealing with Proverbs 15 is interesting because it really has two primary themes. We're going to look at a third that's a bit secondary, but two primary themes. And the first is to highlight that relationship that God has with his creatures. And I'll give you a hint from the very beginning. It's not some sort of dualism where everything's equal. It's not some sort of sports curse where, you know, we maybe made a bad decision, we missed a penalty kick, you know, in 1990, and we've ruined our nation for the next, you know, six World Cups, seven, whatever it is. Instead, actually, the the starting point, the foundation of God's relationship with his creatures is laid out in verse 5, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then 28, 29. A fool despises his father's instruction, verse 5, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Okay, so already laying out the fool, this running portrait of the fool, the one who rejects instruction, who rejects listening, rejects learning. But now it kind of gets amped up a little bit in Proverbs chapter 15. 
Verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Oh, no. Like, you realize most of the time when we talk about wisdom, we talk about it in the context of if you're wise, you make better decisions and your life is easier. And that's not wrong. But a lot of times we don't talk about it this way, that when you act the fool, God hates what you do and sometimes hates you. That God is actively opposed to you. He's actively against you. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Verse uh, 28, 29, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 29, the Lord is far from the wicked. And here's the prayer of the righteous. You see, wrongly so, and I would say certainly America is guilty of this, of we've been infected with Eastern dualism where we tend to think everything's balanced out and the world is always kind of neutral and our starting point in life is from a neutral position. And the problem is, is that we forget that the unbeliever, the story of the non-Christian is a starting point of being hated by God. Verse 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. He's actively working against his enemies. It's not just a a yin-yang balance of power. It's not just some kind of pretend neurotic sports curse. It's the maker of the universe hates the wicked and is actively seeking their destruction. It's a large part of what the book of Proverbs is ultimately trying to get at. Oh, person, will you listen to God who freely offers salvation in Jesus, or will you continue your own path? We're going to get it in the next chapter. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Will you pursue your own values? Will you pursue your own judgments? Will you pursue your own interests? Or will you receive the salvation that God freely offers in Jesus? Will you bow the knee to Christ? So category one of person that we we kind of begin looking at category one is this person that is the fool that has rejected what god has said and continues to reject what god has said and guess what god hates you he's offering salvation to you he's offering adoption but that person is his enemy and his days will be evil And he will receive the discipline of God. There's a second category of person I think that shows up in the Proverbs. It's not maybe quite as easily talked about or easily seen, but I think is important for us to think about. Okay, verses nine through uh, sorry nineteen through twenty two largely in this regard. Here is the person who I'm going to suggest as a believer. We're just going to say maybe they learn a little bit slowly. There are more delicate ways to say it. Perhaps they're stiff necked. Perhaps they're a little bit hard-headed. Perhaps they just 
don't catch the gist of things very quickly. I love the illustration that is put forth in 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. <laughs> you ever tried to like go actually like trailblazing anywhere in the south? Like not like go hiking on the trails, but go, ah, I don't need a trail. I'm going to go that way through the underbrush. How far do you make it before you're like, this was a terrible decision. I regret all of my decisions. I regret everything. You're neck deep in briars. You can't get out. You can't see. The bugs attack you. You wither, you know, waste away from the mosquito bites. It's a terribly difficult process. In fact, actually, if you've ever had to do that for any length of time, try to actually make it through anything like a swamp or anything at all, do you know how physically exhausting it is? I mean, you make it to the other side, and you're like, okay, I'm going to take a nap for the next three years. I'm spent. I'm done. That was my exertion for the decade. I've run out of, I've run out of effort. I'm done. The way of the sluggard, the one who learns slowly, the, the hard-headed, the stiff-necked believer, it, their life is harder. And interestingly, it's not talking about that God gives them more difficult circumstances in this regard. It's that their decision-making brings consequences that is genuinely challenging. 20, a wise son makes a glad father. A foolish man despises his mother. His relationship with his parents is going to go sour. And many of you, if you're walking with the Lord, and not talking about those that were converted later in life, but those that were genuinely believers early on in life, you remember those days, particularly if you were young, uh, doing battle with mom and dad over obedience. For me, I remember, I've used the illustration, before, it was curfew. I just refused to play nicely with curfew. And you know, interestingly, what turned the tide was really not the most spiritual of arguments, but it was, my life is better when I stop fighting with mom and dad. I will obey them if for no other reason than I stop fighting with them. It's almost like right out of the book of Proverbs or something. 21, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. And again, what a portrait of the, of the person who, the things they even delight in, you're like, really? You think that's a good idea? You think that's going to end well? I mean, how many times you've seen the jokes where this like, you know, here, hold my beer, watch this, or hey, y'all, watch this. And you know, you know that whatever follows those words is not going to be good. It's never something you're like, hmm, that was an excellently planned decision. He really properly mapped that one out. Yet how often do we do that where we, we see, again, that hard-headedness where we're committed to our own ways or committed to our own plans or committed to our own paths? Put that in contrast, verses 24 through 33, with the believer who genuinely aggressively submits himself to God's plan. The path of the life leads upward to the prudent. The Lord maintains the widow's boundaries, protecting her land, her, uh, you know, her income, her livelihood. Um, gracious words are pure. No trouble in the household. The Lord hears the prayers of the righteous. Good news refreshes the bones. Being intelligent, honor, wise. 
You see the, the, the huge, huge contrast in the way that the life plays out. You have the unbeliever whom God hates. I'm going to put a second media category here of a, a believer who just learns very slowly and they get all kinds of difficulty in their life because they make dumb decisions constantly. And then a category of a person who submits themselves before the Lord. I'm going to frame out those kind of three categories, and I want us to look just secondly at the primary point that chapter 15 deals with. After this relationship with wisdom is laid out, how well will we listen? How quickly will we listen? Will we obey or will we fight against the Lord? He then uses the illustration of words. What does it mean to be wise with our words? What does wise speech look like? And again, we've all had that moment where you say something and you're like, no words, come back in. And you want to like grab the words out of the air and put them back in. Not entirely talking about that, though that's going to show up. It's how to speak the right thing. Look, at, there, there's a whole bunch of things here for us. Look at, look at the first one, just verse one. What does it mean to be wise with your words? A, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Obedience to the Lord, wisdom in your words, is gentleness even in the face of anger. And again, I think most that have been married or had siblings of any kind know the point where the other person is raging for whatever reason. And instead of de-escalating, they escalate the intensity. You remember this with your siblings? And before you know it, there's fisticuffs and, you know, broken bones and somebody's bleeding and mom and dad ask why. And you're like, because they looked at me. Fair enough. <laughs> Certainly that's worth escalating. Two of my buddies growing up were wrestling and two brothers and same kind of thing. One of them looked at the other one and they were wrestling and the, the one picked up the other's legs and they did kind of leveraged and fell into the wall perfectly spaced between the uh, studs and punched a hole human size perfectly through both walls. Amazing. Dad comes up. He's livid at them. He looked at me. Well, he said he looked at me. Of course he did. You know, versus being those dear saints of the Lord who, even in the face of anger, have a word that is gentle. It's tender. It's kind. I mean, this is one of the things that we're struggling with in the American culture, the American climate right now, is how do we handle uncouth speech? With people making threats... An anonymous internet age, it's not actually anonymous that people think it is and can say whatever dumb thing they feel like they want to say. Interestingly, wise speech, verses 2 and 7, this one I think is intriguing, one that maybe sometimes we forget about, certainly in America where we've been trained that you have a right to speak. This is one of the downsides of having an amendment that says you actually have the right to speak. The Bible says kind of you actually don't. You need to have something to say. Verses 2 and 7, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. It doesn't multiply words. It's not just talking for talking's sake. It's contributing to the conversation. But the mouths of the fools pour out folly. Uh, mental picture I have in my head is uh, you know, like turning on a faucet. 
and just water continually pours out of the faucet. The, the fool, they open their mouth and just words continue to come out. They can't ever seem to stop them. Just stop for a minute. I, I, don't, I don't need all of those words, particularly uninformed, unhelpful words. No, instead a wise person is going to have a, a mouth that pours forth knowledge. It's informed. It's useful. They're not just talking for talking's sake. It comes up again in verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. <laughs> not so the hearts of fools. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. They speak without knowledge. They are the human, you know, verbal of fake news, effectively. <clears throat> talking but not contributing to anything. And again, so often we've kind of been raised in this American climate where you've been told, no, you have a voice, you have the right to use it. And it's like, well, yes, you do, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing or you should. It means you need to figure out what you need to say. Verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Uh, this, they're going to be healing words. A tree of life is to bring healing, it's to bring encouragement, it's to bring strength, it's to bring recovery and restoration. Do you realize we're the only people on planet, and I don't mean in Christ Ridge, thank the Lord, but I mean Christians are the only people on the planet that genuinely have the ability to give healing words. Because we're the only people that have the ability to genuinely forgive. I can forgive someone else because Jesus has already forgiven me. No one else can do that except for saints. I mean, do you realize how powerful those words are? You can look someone in the eyes and say, look, I love you. I forgive you because I've been forgiven. We're the only ones on the planet who can share the words of life. Look, you may be forgiven too. I know because I have been. We have the ability to heal in a way that no one else does. And that doesn't mean that we can't stand up for ourselves. That doesn't mean that we can't have answers or be technical. It doesn't mean that we can't be polemic and, and try to show the distance between the unbelieving thought process and the Christian one. But it is an, a different attitude with how we approach our words. And I think maybe this last principle that's laid out here is the one that frames all of the others. Let's look at verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of challenge you just generally. Do you ever actually stop and think about what you're going to say before you start saying it? Or even while the other person is talking, are you already mapping out how you're going to contribute to the conversation next? Do we ever pause? This has been one thing that's been very interesting about being a PhD student with a bunch of South Korean guys. Because that is actually much more of their culture in the, the Presbyterian church there. It's funny because you'll ask them a question and they don't answer. At least not right away. 
because they want to show you respect to your question, so they listen to it all the way through. And so then they have to start thinking after they've listened to the question. So they may take 15 or 20 or 30 or 45 seconds to prepare their answer, looking you square in the eyes, and then providing something that's most often, with my friends, most often very profound and very helpful and very useful and very godly. And it's amazing because you have that conversation and you just think, this is so incredibly un-American. To see people that genuinely pause and listen and reflect and think and map out what they're going to say. Again, how many times have you found yourself in that situation where you start talking and you think you're headed that way with the sentence and somehow the sentence ends up way over there, but you're never really sure how you got there? Because we haven't thought. We don't, we don't think. We just talk. Verse 23 is similar. It adds a key word here. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. A word in good season. How good it is. It's, it's not just saying things gently. Uh, not just saying things as useful information. It's not just saying things that are, are healing words. But it's knowing when to say the right thing. It's knowing when to comment on things. It's knowing when to not comment on things. And some of us, this is probably a much bigger thing. Where we find ourselves constantly commenting on the wrong things and not commenting on the right things and going, man, I just cannot manage to get my feet out of my mouth. It's pretty much my entire childhood. It doesn't just stop with our words, though. These words are an outpouring of the heart. And it's a greater reflection of the internal disposition of the people of God. Look at verses 13 through 17. The internal disposition of the saint. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. Their, Their internal disposition is one of gladness. They've been forgiven of sin. They've been filled with the Spirit. The people of God have every reason to be happy. Their internal disposition is not morose. Fourteen. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. The mouth of fools feed on folly. We talked about that one. Fifteen. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. I love that. What is it feasting on? The gladness that God has given. In fact, I was just going to clarify in the next verse. Better to have a little with a fear of the Lord than a great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. It's better to just be dirt poor but experience the gladness of God than it is to be mega rich and be miserable. And if you do not believe that, go read biographies. Read Michael Jackson's biography. Go watch any of the like dozens of documentaries on lottery winners. Lottery winners, most of them are, are bankrupt again within what, 18 months, I think is some crazy number like that. Their lives are miserable. Uh, going back to another World Cup illustration, one of the Nigerian players is notoriously wealthy. He played for Chelsea for many, many years, but the country he's from, Nigeria, is not. So in the middle of the World Cup, they kidnapped his father and tried to ransom him back. In the middle of the World Cup! He's not even in Nigeria. He can't pay the ransom. He's in Russia, halfway around the world. 
That this internal disposition is one that is filled with the gladness of God. And so the circumstances are far less important. Doesn't matter if you have a ton of food, you can be glad with that. Doesn't matter if you don't have a ton of food, you can be glad with that. Doesn't matter if you have a ton of money or much less money. The gladness is marked by the presence of God. And that gladness of heart then overflows with gladness of mouth. And that gladness of mouth is contagious. This is going to be mapped out in verse 18, where a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. One of the commentators said he's the center of the storm. Everywhere he goes, conflict follows. Versus the person who is glad of heart, who is slow to anger and quiets contention. That has that self-control that God gives, that gladness of heart that is able to, my mental kind of picture of it, is the gladness that God gives is like water that puts out fires everywhere they go. So when that person shows up, if there's little smoldering frustrations, that person douses the water of God upon it. If they show up and there's big fires burning, that person's gladness of heart by God, the carefulness of their words, they can put out fires everywhere they go. Now, man, I figured this out. That was one of my life goals. Is that everywhere I go, I put out fires and not make them. I want to be a reconciler. That's my desire. That's what God has built us to be. I want to be bringing the words of peace and life. Not always successful. Sometimes not successful at all, but God's working and I'm more successful now than I ever have been. Verse 30. This type of person ends up being an encouragement everywhere they go. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. They are encouraging, they're edifying their light and life to those around them. I'm going to use a little bit of a, a stronger illustration. How many of your friends think of you as Eeyore instead of thinking of you as Tigger? <laughs> Just saying. Right? How many of us, when our friends, those that know us, actually know our internal disposition, go, you know what? I mean, I love them, but they're Eeyore. <laughs> I mean, they're just always just... Mm. And all the words that flow out of their mouth are just weights around my neck. And the more I talk with them, the more weight they try to drape on me. As opposed to lifting me up and building me up. I mean, think about it. Again, what an effective means of evangelism. You realize this is a tremendous, tremendous basis for evangelism to be able to just be so catastrophically different from the world. I'm not saying that we turn a blind eye to struggles. Absolutely not. I'm not saying we turn a blind eye to difficulty. Absolutely not. I'm saying we process it through the lens and the light and the glory and the goodness of God. Does not matter how yucky my circumstances are. My God is enough. And He is good. And He is good to me. In fact, actually, when we think about this attitude, realistically, some of us in here should be convicted. I'm not going to call names. That would be one, unbelievably tacky, and two, completely undercut the point of the sermon. (laughs) 
But some of us really need to consider our attitudes. We have bad attitudes. We are not people who are filled with joy and gladness. We're not like one of those, you know, artesian wells that just constantly bubbles up. Grew up with one of those in my yard, and kind of in the, between my yard and the next yard over. And there was a spot about 20 feet wide that was always filled with just soggy quicksand mud. Didn't matter if we're in the middle of a drought. I'm not kidding. I mean, you'd be worst drought ever. You walk over there and sink straight up to your neck. It was amazing because it was constantly producing water. Well, as saints, we need to be constantly, by the mercy of God in us, producing this joy and gladness. Some of us need to consider our attitudes. And as we consider our attitudes, some of us need to be intentionally careful and think about how we utilize our words. Are we planning out what we're going to say? Or are we just kind of puking words out and hope they end up well? Surprised when they don't. How is this possible? I mean, honestly, that's going to be the real issue is if you genuinely wrestle with this passage, I mean, if you're actually listening to the sermon and not giving me the like fisheye thing, you know, where you you aren't (laughs) blinking, but it looks like you're paying attention. If you're actually engaging the sermon, the real question that you have to have is how on earth can this be done? Because sometimes I'm going to be honest. I like my little pouty attitudes. I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I like my grumpy attitudes because it's a little bit fun, if we're going to be honest. And sometimes I can't figure out how to get out of them. And I I love that this chapter is framed with a conversation about wisdom. But on the other end of it, the other side of the bracket, it's a conversation that God knows his creatures. Look at verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You don't realize these are commands. It's not like God is giving commands without understanding of what he's saying. He knows your frame. He made you. He knows your internal disposition. He made it. He knows how hard it is for the tongue to work. He created it. And his son has redeemed it. It's not like God is giving these commands without knowledge or understanding. He is wise. He's giving new information to the uh, interchange here, to the relationship, and saying, look, this is how you are designed to operate. I know how it works. In fact, actually, if you don't believe it, I'll give you another illustration. Verse 6, I know how much money you actually have. I love that. It seems totally out of place, but I love it so much. The house of the righteous, there's much treasure, but trouble falls the income of the wicked. He knows our money. He knows all the parts and pieces of our house. He knows all the parts and pieces of our bank account. He knows all the parts and pieces of our life. And it's within that context that he gives his good and righteous and right law. And honestly, if you are his child... And if you are committed to learning the right way, and if you are committed to humility and obedience, and let's say you take this sermon to heart and you walk out, and I pray that you do, I genuinely believe your family will notice and your your life will be better. If you repent and ask the Lord to work in you a new attitude and a new mouth, look at what verses 8 and 9 say. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He hates the bad. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. 
Do you realize that if you ask God to help you change your attitude and ask God to help you change how you use your words, he hears your prayer and it's acceptable to him because it's a pleasing prayer. And then verse 9 is even more. <laughs> the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He hates the bad one. But he loves him who pursues righteousness. If you've committed yourself because you are a child of God to serving the Lord in this way, he hears your prayer, it's pleasing to him, he's going to help you, and he's on your side the whole way through. And that's why it was so important that we started out with that initial conversation. What kind of person are you? Are you an unbeliever? Well, guess what? God's not actually on your side right now. That's a bigger problem we need to get fixed. Are you a believer that's just not walking in obedience? Well, your life's going to be hard, and that's going to be your fault. The Lord's promised help if you want to take it. I'm giving you good advice from the scriptures on how to do so. If you are a saint, and you want to live as God has commanded, and you want to honor him, and you want to be, increase your usefulness to his kingdom, and you want to be effective in evangelism, and you want to be the kind of person who is a great friend, that people love to be with, that is a blessing to the church, that makes the pastor's life better, that the elders delight. Here you go. This is it. Changed attitude and changed mouth. And God loves, he delights in helping his people. Let's pray. Father, we recognize we have fallen so short of this. We love to pretend like our attitudes are always good. We know secretly that they're not. And unfortunately, we're blinded to how bad they are. So even when we think they're good, they're really not a lot of the time. Forgive us for our sin. We ask in Jesus' name that you would convict us of our poor attitudes. We ask in Jesus' name that you would show us our sin for where we are not cheerful of spirit, but where we are grumpy. In a sinful and evil fashion, we ask that you would show us, bring it to mind when we are being self-centered and being just unpleasant because of it. And Lord, we do ask that because of the gladness that you will give that can only be found in Jesus, we pray that you would give us glad mouths that are gentle and kind, that speak the right word in the right way, that smooth over and soothe frustrations and irritations. May we be people that speak the words of life. And, oh God, would your name be praised that even in America today, that you would, in this portion of your people, showcase the kindness of Christ, even in our words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.